We are bringing together imperfect people in pursuit of a whole life. Welcome to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. This week, Pastor Dion shares his message from Operation 611, Righteousness and Godliness. How many of you have seen the, the classic, it's a classic in my mind, the classic movie, The Princess Bride? Okay, a lot of you, good, good, good. I'm in good company today then. Uh, it's a movie we love at my house. Uh, just a lot of people love it. It's a great movie. And one of my favorite scenes from the movie it happens very early on in the movie. The, the plot is pretty simple. This princess gets kidnapped by this, this criminal trio. And the mastermind, this little guy by the name of Fazzini, he, he's the mastermind of this criminal trio. And he has this phrase that he keeps using over and over again. Does anyone who's seen it know what it is? Yeah, inconceivable, inconceivable, he says. Um, so there's a moment, you know, early on in the movie where they kidnap the princess by night and they're in a ship and they're sailing away and, and suddenly they look behind and there's a ship following them and this, this is impossible. How could anyone know? And, and so Fizzini's inconceivable and then they dock the ship at this big cliff and they start climbing this rope. Andre the Giant is in the movie, uh, if you remember him, 80s wrestling, WWF, anybody? Yeah, Andre the Giant climbing the rope, got you know, three people on his back, and they look behind, and, and here comes this masked pursuer behind them, and he's gaining on them, and, and again, Fasini, inconceivable, and then they get to the top of the cliff, and, and there's the rope, and, and Fasini starts cutting the rope, and he cuts the rope while the guy's still, you know, the pursuer, the masked pursuer's climbing up, and, and uh, the rope goes over, and they all run to the edge of the cliff, and they look, and they see that that this masked man is now holding on to the rock face of the cliff. He, he didn't die, and, and he looks over and he goes, he didn't die, inconceivable. And that's when another member of the trio, the, the assassin, Anigo Montoya, it's when he turns and looks and he says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Now, I, I love that clip because it's, it's funny. I actually tried to show you that clip, but YouTube like, was not playing well with me. I don't know why Doug Moss can show you clips for days and YouTube likes them. There's a conspiracy against me. Um, the one time I tried to show you a clip. Anyway, that was more fun, right? Hearing, hearing me do accents. Um, the reason I love that clip is not just because it's a great movie, because I think in life we often find ourselves in that place, right? We're using words, but they do not mean what we think they mean. Um, for me, a long time I used the word glut, G-L-U-T, in the exact opposite way of what the word is meant. I thought it meant like there wasn't enough of something rather than an abundance of something. I don't know how I got it backwards, but I was using it wrong for a long time. Or I hear people using a word um, often that's not even a word, irregardless. Anyone want to fess up to that one, irregardless? The word's just regardless. There's no reason to add an ear to it. It's just regardless. It, that's the word. Or uh, a word right now that people use all the time. I'm looking at you, younger generations. You use it and it's, it's you're not, that word does not mean what you think it means. Literally. <laughs> right? Use literally, but you actually are using it in a way that is not literal at all. It is rather figurative. I literally died. Oh, did you? Because you look great, or you got brought, for a dead person, you got brought, or maybe we're in heaven. I don't know what's going on, but literally, no, you mean figuratively. Now, uh, this, this, whole, this whole thing, using words 
thinking they mean one thing to actually mean something else. This plagues us in the church as Christians, as pastors. We consistently use the Bible's words. And, and sometimes I hear that and I just go like, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Today in this series, we're kicking off um, just this in-depth look at six words in the Bible. They're the heart of what this Operation 611 thing is all about. Six words that come from 1 Timothy 6, 11. They're words that have great power if we pursue them, if we prioritize them, if we understand them. But what gets in our way are a couple things. One is that we don't understand them. I'm going to talk about that more later. But, but another thing that gets in our way of us just really embracing these words is that when things in life get uncertain, when the ground shifts beneath our feet, when we're feeling unstable or unsteady, we all have a tendency, a pattern of running to familiar things. Things that we think will help us feel secure. Those things tend to be uh, money or wealth, power, Sometimes that power may manifest as like physical power, like, like weapons or arms or things that you can use to protect yourself, um, things like status or other people, tribalism, herding. Um, those are patterns that we tend to do when we're feeling the ground shifting beneath our feet. And as we talked about last week, AJ Massey talked about this, we're in a moment where for, the, for Christians, for a lot of us, we feel this, we sense this, that we're losing ground culturally, um, that there are other influencers that we're kind of you know, being diminished or even threatened. So we feel this unsteadiness and our pattern is to run after some, some pretty age old kind of things, things that are not actually that helpful. Uh, just in a smaller way, I, I think about two years ago at the beginning of the pandemic, when this whole thing was starting and I was like, oh, this is real, I did two things. I don't know about you, I did two things. I went to the bank and I withdrew cash. I was like, I think I might need to have cash. And then I started looking for bullets. And I'm not even really a gun guy, but I was like, I think I need some bullets. I need cash and I need bullets. I need wealth and I need something to protect my family. I don't need groceries, I don't need canned goods, I don't need toilet paper. I can survive if I've got, if I've got cash money and I've got bullets, I'll be okay. And of course there's some you know, flaws in that logic, but to me that's where I went. My question for you is just to think about this briefly. Where do you go? What do you pursue when you're feeling unsteady in life, when it feels like the ground is shifting beneath your feet? You probably have predictable patterns. Where do you run? See, in this series, I'm going to encourage you to pursue other things instead. That's what Paul is going to talk about. He's the greatest leader in the New Testament after Jesus. And he's writing in these letters that we're going to look at, just pieces of letters that he, he's writing to a younger leader by the name of Timothy. And Timothy's in a tough spot. The world is changing. He's under threat. He feels it. And Paul's going to warn him, hey, Timothy, don't run to the usual things. Don't go where everyone else goes. And he points him to this Operation 611 stuff, these, these covert things that no one really thinks highly of, but they have great power. Here's what he says. He says, but you man of God, Paul writing to Timothy, you man of God, flee from all this. And what he's talking about is all the stuff that came before and the verses before. Primarily, Paul's talking about our pattern or our tendency to run after wealth, to chase after money. And he says, you know, those who want to get rich, they fall into a trap, they pierce themselves on many trials. In other words, 
I know it's tempting to think when things get insecure that if you just had a little more money, you could make yourself safe. But Paul says, no, Timothy, I want, you to, I want you to, instead of running toward the stuff people run toward, I want you to run the other direction. And instead, here's what I want you to run toward. I want you to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. This is the heart of Operation 611. These are the six words we're going to study over the next three weeks. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and endurance. Uh, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. He says, fight the good fight of faith. So we're fighting these battles, but we're not using the usual weapons, okay? We're not fighting with the weapons that the world fights with. We're not fighting with the things that are being lobbed at us. We're we're fighting with different weapons, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. These are the things we're seeking to cultivate because they're truly powerful. This is how the battle will be won. And then later on, he says this, command those who are rich in this present world, there's a lot of great wordplay here around the word rich, uh, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, right? Don't, don't go there if you have it. But instead, encourage them to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, not to get rich, but to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation, right? You want security when the world is shifting? It's not to be found in your wealth instead. Be rich in good deeds, trust in God, put your hope in him. In this way, you'll find true security. You'll have a firm foundation for the coming age so that you may take hold of life that is truly life. I love those words. So what we're all about here at Pathfinder. We're all alive, but we're seeking after something more, a whole life. We're trying to take hold of life that is truly life. Maybe I'm belaboring it, but I want you to hear this. Paul is saying, you know what? It is so easy when life gets unsteady and uncertain to run after the same old things. But instead, flee those things, he says, the usual stuff. And and he says, pursue these other things instead. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, gentleness, and endurance. Chase after those things. Those things are the key to your true power. Those things are the keys to your security. And so today, we're going to dive into the first two of those words. There's kind of some parody in those words. We're going to talk about righteousness and godliness. Important words, but as we've already learned, often they do not mean what we think they mean mean. The problem with these words in particular, and this is even more distinct than the rest of the words we're going to look at in the series, is that we often put these words along with other words that kind of sound like them, words like goodness, you know, righteousness, godliness, goodness, maybe faithfulness, maybe holiness. Um, you know, we put all of those words, we kind of put them into our, our lexical blender. We press pulse, and what we come up with is a nice biblical word smoothie. Anyone want to take a drink of that? It's a pretty picture, but I'm like, it's kind of brown and chunky. I'm not sure. Right? We, we come up with just this mismatch, and we're looking at this, and we're like, I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's appetizing. I don't, who's going to take a first drink? Give it to Mikey. He likes it. He'll drink anything, right? We're like, what, what, is, what is in there? And see, this is what we do. We tend to take words like righteousness and godliness and goodness and faithfulness and holiness and all these words, and we put them all together and we come up with this mismatch kind of concept that has something to do with morality. It has something to do with be good, don't sin, don't do yucky stuff, don't be godless or something, and and that's what we do. And the reality is, 
that although we, we, you know, we're kind of looking at this and we're going, I don't know, the reality is what this is made up of, there are all these other ingredients that are really, that, that are really like pleasing and beneficial and tasty and a, they're appealing. And, and if you look at what those ingredients are, then you start to see like, oh, that's good stuff. But you don't get there when you just mix them all together. So what we're going to do in the series is we're going we're to kind of look at each of these things on their own to really understand what these words mean. If we are to pursue them, we've we got to know what it is that we are pursuing. So uh, I'm going to start off with the word righteousness. Now righteousness is a big word, especially for me. I was raised in the Lutheran tradition. Uh, anyone else raised in the Lutheran tradition? It's kind of where I went to seminary, that's some of our foundation. Uh, if you were, then you know that this was a big deal for Martin Luther, a 15th century uh, theologian who um, just had a lot to say about righteousness. He brought forward this teaching from the Bible that we are justified, justified by grace through faith. That was a core teaching for him. So righteousness really means the same thing as justification. These are both big theological words for me growing up. Both of these words come from the Greek word dikaios. Dikaios. Now don't you love this? We're trying to get to the root of what a word means, a confusing word, and and this is what pastors do. We start to help you get clear on words. We start telling you words in languages you don't speak because that's going to help. Do you know why we do this, by the way? Because seminary is expensive. And we need to feel like we got our money's worth, okay? All that study. But the reality is, the chaos means justification or righteousness, but you don't have to learn Greek to really know what this means. You simply chop off the tail of these words. Righteousness means to be made right. Justification means to be just. It's that simple. Now, we're gonna talk um, about you know, righteousness here first before we get to godliness. And here's the other thing that I'll say, that when we talk about righteousness, another confusing facet is that there are actually two dimensions to righteousness when the Bible talks about it. And the first and the more important dimension is a righteousness that cannot be pursued. It's not the righteousness that Paul's talking about in 1 Timothy 6.11. It's not the righteousness we're talking about in this series. But I have to talk about it because it's important. It's not a righteousness that can be pursued because it is a righteousness that is given. The kind of righteousness I'm talking about is to be made right, to be right in the sight of God. And here's what you need to know today. That is something you cannot get for yourself. That is something that is given. Paul talked about this in Romans. This is Martin Luther, love this stuff. Uh, Romans, Paul says, what does the scripture say? Abraham, who's the father of faith, he he did one thing. He believed God. That was the sum total of his life. He believed God and that was credited to him as righteousness. It made him right. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. If you work, you get a paycheck. That's not your boss giving you something. That's what you earn, right? Wages are credited for the work done. They're paid out, it's an exchange. But he says, on on the other hand, however, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So Paul's saying something important here in Romans 4. He's saying that the way we get right with God is not by proving ourselves to be right. It's not acting right. 
If that were the case, then then God's not giving us a gift. He's just, you know, he's saying, well, you're right with me because you're acting right. Instead, what he says is the way we get made right with God is by trusting God's promises, trusting in the work of Jesus. We simply trust God. We don't even have to do the work, and he makes us right. God declares us right, not because we've proven that we're right. God declares us right because we trust in Jesus by faith. Now, here's where I think this also gets confusing when we talk about righteousness. Again, put it in the blender, everything gets all mixed up. Um, When we talk about being made righteous, it's about being made right relationally. It's about being made right relationally with God. Righteousness does not mean that somehow uh, God erases our mistakes. It's actually a different word. Righteousness does not imply that God changes us from the inside out and and makes us into new people. There's a different word for that. Righteousness does not mean that God ignores our sin. It does not mean that. Righteousness isn't a word that's about morality. It's a word that's about relationship. And so we can be complete scoundrels and still be righteous. In fact, not only can we be, we are. You back there especially. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, right? We are. We, we are complete scoundrels, and yet we're righteous because righteousness is not about morality. It's about relationship. See, God sees us exactly as we are. He sees the full picture of who we are. And, uh, and remember this from a couple of weeks ago. What he says to us is we're okay. This is righteousness. We're okay, God says. Not it's okay. He's not saying, hey, your behavior's okay, what you did is okay, I'm I'm down with that. That's not what he's saying. That's not the point. That's not righteousness. Those are other words, other terms that God deals with in other ways. Righteousness is simply this. We are now right relationally. We are okay. If you're struggling to understand what righteousness is, I I think the best picture in all of Scripture is the parable of the prodigal son. Have you ever heard of that? Kind of know a little bit about that. It's sometimes called the parable of the waiting father or even the parable of the running father, which is my favorite title. See, Jesus tells a story. It's a made-up story, but it demonstrates something profound. He tells a story about a son who goes and asks his, his dad for his inheritance. Basically says, you know, give me your money, dad, the money you owe me. It's like so entitled and so bratty and so disrespectful. And so he takes the money and then he goes off and he lives a crazy wild life. He, he's, you know, he's living it up with, with drugs and all kinds of, you know, like just wild living. And, and he spends every cent of this inheritance that really should carry him through the rest of life. And not only that, but he becomes a source of gossip and he dishonors himself and dishonors his father and, and they're the talk of the town and it is, it is a mess. And then finally, this, this son who has depleted all of his resources, he decides he's gonna go back home. Not because he's sorry, but because he's out of money. <laughs> he has nowhere to go. He's at a dead end. He is at rock bottom. And so he turns toward home. And here's what happens. The moment he turns towards home and he's on this long road, his father sees him coming because his father has been watching, waiting for any sign of his son. And when the father sees the son, while the son is still a long way off, this this father does an undignified thing. He, He runs to meet his son. He throws open his arms and he embraces him just as he is. Sinful, broke, shame-faced, 
smelling like pig crap. Some of you remember that message from a couple of years ago. I still get emails about that one. Now, here's what I need you to understand. In that embrace, here's what that embrace did. That embrace did not suddenly change the facts of the situation. The son still, you know, squandered all of his wealth. He's still wearing shabby clothes. He still smells really badly. He's still unkempt. There's still a lot of damage. There's a lot of things that need to be repaired. That did not change the external realities of the situation. What that embrace did, it was God's way, the Father's way of saying, hey, we're okay. It's not okay. Right? What, what you did, how you treated me, how you lived your life, the choices you made, those are not okay, but, but we're okay. And so I can love you, I can receive you, I can accept you, I can welcome you back into relationship with me. I really hope you take a shower and cut your hair and clean your clothes because this isn't good. You know, I hope you make different choices, but I want you to know we're okay. This is what it means to be made righteous. It means that God sees you just as you are and he says, you know what, we're okay. Come into relationship with me anyway, just as you are. I need you to hear that today because I don't know where you are. I don't know your present condition. I don't know the messes in your life. I know you have them because we all do. But here's what's important for you to understand. God does not expect you to clean yourself up first. God does not expect you to get everything right in your life before you can be right with him. Jesus came into the world so that you simply by trusting in Jesus, trusting in his heart, God's intention for you shown through Jesus. God is saying to you today, wherever you are, he's embracing you and he says, we're okay. And yeah, is there stuff in your life that's probably not okay? Absolutely, there is stuff in your life and in my life that is not okay and yet God is saying to you, hey, in spite of all that stuff, we're okay. I've made a way for you to be right with me. You got it? Being righteous is not, a, it's not a moral word, it's a relational word. It's about being made right relationally. That's the first dimension. So um, on one hand, righteousness is a gift. You can't get it, God gives it, he says we're okay. But there's this second dimension. Remember I told you there's two dimensions. The second dimension of righteousness is the de- dimension that Paul is talking about in this scripture that we're studying. It's a, it's a second kind of righteousness. And it's not about our relationship with God or our standing with God. You can't pursue that. God has pursued you. He's the one who runs after you. It's a, it's a, a relational dynamic of how we live life with each other. The best way I could think to put it is this. Pursuing righteousness means living rightly or justly, right? Righteousness, justification, rightly, justly, and fairly. I added that one in in your relationships with others. Pursuing righteousness means living rightly, justly, and fairly in your relationships with others. This is the thing that Paul is telling us to pursue. He says there's power in this. Now, if you step back this, from this for a minute, here's what I, here's what I know to be true that uh, as people, we are good at using other people to get what we want or need in life, aren't we? We're good at using people to get us wealth. 
Paul talked a lot about that today. We're, we're good at using people to get us wealth. If anyone has ever invited you to join their downline, you know, like, join my team. I have a life-changing opportunity for you. You can make income just sitting at home. Like, you know that on one hand, maybe they do really want to help you, but on the other hand, it's kind of like, well, the real reason I want you to join my downline is because if I can get two more people, then my commissions go from 15% to 40%. I make a lot more money off of you. Right? We're good at using people to get what we need. Or, or even beyond wealth to satisfy our appetites, our need for um, affirmation or our need for, um, for recognition, our need for sex, whatever it is. Oh, we're good at using people to get us power. Politicians are great at this. You make speeches to people so they put you in power and then once you're in power, you forget about the people who put you there until you need them again. <laughs> then you go around and visit and you make speeches and you listen again. But we all do this. Our tendency is to use people. But pursuing righteousness is the exact opposite because that's the exact opposite of what God does. God doesn't use anyone. God gives himself for the benefit of other people. And so living righteously means simply that we stop using people for our benefit. We stop using people for our benefit and instead we seek to live right, we seek to do right, we seek to be just, to act justly, we seek to be fair to people around us. We do whatever it takes to live this way even when it costs us. Because that's the model that God has given us. Uh, last summer, I was standing on our deck and I was looking in our backyard. We were getting ready to have a graduation party for our oldest child. And, um, and we were doing it in the backyard. So I mean, I'm kind of like hyper vigilant of what the yard looks like. And I start to notice there is this, this long strip of our grass right in the middle of our backyard that is brown. It's like dying. Something bad happened to it. And I started to notice um, that where it started was right where our neighbor's pop-up drain comes up. The water kind of runs through our backyard to the storm sewer, and so we get a lot of water, and I'm like, oh, that's not good. All right, what happened there? Something came from our neighbor's yard and came through the pop-up drain. I wonder what happened. So um, I saw my neighbor outside, and I was like, hey, do you know anything about this? And we walked back and looked at it, and my neighbor right away, I didn't even have to say anything. The moment he saw it, he began apologizing. And he said, oh my gosh, you know what I think happened? He said, I, I've got this machine up there. It's been leaking hydraulic fluid. And I, you know, I, I didn't really know, but it's way up there and it kind of killed some of our grass. He said, I, I think somehow that leaked down through the drain and, and it got into your yard. And, and he said, but hey, I know you're having a party. I, I'm so sorry. Here's what I'm gonna do. I, I'm gonna take that grass up and not only the grass, but the soil underneath it probably now has that fluid and it's just gonna kill anything that grows up above it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it all the way down. I'm gonna take the top soil out. I'm gonna bring in new soil. I'm gonna put some sod there for you and I'm gonna do it all at my expense before you have that party. Did I luck out with a great neighbor or what? Here's what's amazing to me. I don't know what my neighbor's relationship is with God. I, I, I don't know that he's a, he's a practicing Christian, but I'll tell you this. He knows something about pursuing righteousness. Doing what's right, being right, living justly, living fairly with your neighbor, even when it costs you. That's hard to do though, isn't it? I mean, how hard is it for us to, to live this out, especially when other people aren't living this out toward us. It might be easy to live this way if people are living this way to us, but how hard is it not to treat others according to how they treat us or according to their negative actions? I, I can do right by people if they're doing right by me, but if they stop, then game on. But what if we lived 
with others the way God lives toward us? What if we consistently treated people better than they deserve, even when it costs us? What if we paid our employees well, even if it took out of our bottom line? What if we cared for our neighbor's yards as much as we cared for our own yards? What if we were people who, who did what A.J. showed us, A.J. Mastic showed us last week. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2. What if we lived such good lives among the people who didn't believe that though they accused us of doing wrong, they tried to find fault with us, instead they could only see good deeds and, and then ended up giving glory to God because of us, right? What if we were willing to do that even when it cost us? Do you think that would make a difference in the world we're living in? Of course it would. How do I know? Because history tells us so. The early Christian church, they were a sect of a sect. They were a minority group of a minority group. They had absolutely no power or status. These people who were receiving these letters from people like Peter and Paul, they had no power. And yet, because of the way they lived among their neighbors, there were people who just sought to be right and to do right by people and, to, and to, even though they were accused of wrong, they, they were good to their neighbors. And you know what the result was? There were some days where thousands of people came to faith in one day. Simply because of the way, the, the way the early church pursued righteousness in their relationships with the people around them. Thousands of people in a day, just right around the city of Jerusalem even. Can you imagine? I mean, this is, this is powerful. So righteousness, pursuing it, we can't pursue the righteousness that God gives. It's a gift. God says, hey, you're, you're right with me. We're okay. But we can strive to live okay, to be right, to do right with the people around us. Um, let's talk about godliness now. Godliness is a word that Paul doesn't use much in his writing. Paul loves dikaios. He uses it all the time in various variations. Godliness, he uses 10 times in all of his writings. Eight of those times are in this letter. And I think uh, godliness is a difficult word for a lot of reasons, but godliness, Paul will say later, if you get it wrong, if you lock into a bad definition, if this word doesn't mean what you think it means, uh, godliness will lead you actually to destructive behavior. It'll take you to a bad place. Here's what he says in his next letter to Timothy. He says, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love. Unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good. They'll be treacherous and they'll be rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness. Now, wait a minute. One of these things is not like the other. In, this, in the middle of this, this list of like treacherous, rash, conceited, hateful, boastful, like you get godliness there. And Paul says, yeah, this, this is the root of the problem having a form of godliness, but denying its power. This creates all the rest of this mess. He goes on to say, have nothing to do with such people. They are like those who, who worm their way into the homes of, and gain control over gullible women, naive people or vulnerable people. People are loaded down with sins and are swayed with all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. He's talking about believers here 
who get it so wrong that their behavior becomes destructive. How does that happen? How do people who assume, you know, they're trying to be godly, how do they get it so wrong? It's a great question, isn't it? I'll tell you, part of the impetus for this series was a couple of years ago, uh, some time ago, I, w- I was going through a time where I was experiencing a lot, of, a lot of hurt, a lot of attacks, some of these words that Paul just used. I was experiencing that in my life. I was, I was the target of that. And I was the target of that from Christian people. And it was so confusing to me. I, I didn't know, like, I, just so you know, and this is like I'm giving you my vulnerability, um, whenever someone accuses me of something, I automatically assume that, yeah, it's my fault, I've done something wrong. Like, I'm, I'm quick to blame myself. And so I'm looking inside, and I'm just like, I don't get it, what did I do? These are, these are godly people. I must be the one who's wrong. There must be something wrong with me. I must have, I must have missed something. I... And God mercifully um, directed me to these letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, and I read them over and over and over again, and I realized that, you know, all of these things, lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, you know, like slanderous, like all of those words described what was going on, but I realized why it was happening, how this could happen amongst Christians. It's because people had settled on the wrong definition of godliness, Right? They had a form of godliness, but they were denying its power. There it is. They had the wrong picture of godliness. See, and it's not just them, it's all of us. If we get this wrong, and when we get this wrong, when we've gotten this wrong, it leads to some of the most just awful behavior. But we feel justified. See, if we think godliness means standing up for what's right and fighting for our rights, then we're going to get this wrong. We're going to do all the things that Paul just warned Timothy about. If we think it's just about being zealous for our faith, we might get this wrong. If we think it's about fighting for the truth and fighting against godlessness, then we are bound for trouble. We're headed in the wrong direction. See, throughout time, you can study this. Whenever we've gotten the picture of what it means to be godly wrong, and we start doing those other things, we start stand up for truth, we're fighting for God, we're, we're warring against godlessness in the world. Whenever that happens, that leads to ugly stuff. That leads to inquisitions and crusades, the conquistadors, all kinds of stuff. But let's not act like we're innocent. I know I'm not. See, in my zeal sometimes, to be godly, and I've got the wrong definition, I'm gonna help you with the right definition in a minute, I know that it's in those moments that I have done the most hurtful, I've been responsible for the most ugly behavior of my life. Gossip, slander, shunning, attacking, that brings out the worst in me. It's all because when it comes to this word godliness, you keep using that word, it does not mean what you think it means, right? So what is the power of godliness? What is a godliness that has power? Um, it's this. Pursuing godliness means cultivating a Godward heart. See, if righteousness is about relationships, godliness is about the heart. It is about the direction. Godward, that's a made-up word. I made it up. But you get it, right? Forward, backward, it's where you're headed. Having a heart that is directed toward God. The power of godliness is godliness is your compass. It's your direction. It is directing and aligning your heart toward the things of God. It is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, 
in strength. Godliness is not crusading against all the godlessness in the world. Godliness is not crusading against all the godlessness inside of you. That's not what it is. And here's why that's important. And this is a truism in life. It's important because what you focus on only gets bigger. You know that, don't you? What you focus on just gets larger. You focus on physical pain you have in your body, the pain gets bigger. You focus on a child who's acting out and give them attention, you've just made that that bad behavior bigger, right? And so often we think that to be godly means we focus on all the things that are wrong in the world and we war against them, we fight against them, we condemn those things. Or we focus on all the things that are broken inside of us and we look at that stuff and we say, I'm going to fix this and we get serious about this. But what happens is what we focus on only gets bigger. Pretty soon that's all we can see in the world. That's all we can see in ourselves. The resistance comes up. We fall into condemnation and self-hatred. The way to deal with this stuff is not to focus on it. It's instead to focus ourselves on the heart of God. To direct our heart towards his heart. To remember that at the heart of God is not a heart of law, is not a heart of condemnation, but a heart of grace. Remembering the picture of that father who runs after us wherever we find ourselves and embraces us as we are. See, that's the picture of godliness. What you focus on gets bigger. And if if you think the world is going in the wrong direction, don't focus on the stuff of the world. If there's stuff inside of you that you don't like, don't focus on that stuff. Instead, pursue God's heart for you. Focus there and pretty soon everything else starts to change. That is a godliness with real power. And just like I gave you a picture of what righteousness looks like, remember I gave you a picture just a minute ago, the parable of the prodigal son, right? Three of you remember, I'm so encouraged you've already forgotten half my message. Uh, I'm going to give you another picture. Uh, When you think of godliness, I want you to think of King David. Now, if you don't know King David, he was the most celebrated king in all of Israel's history, but he was not a perfect man. Godliness does not mean being perfect. David was, a, he was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He even turned a blind eye to a sexual assault on his own daughter, just kind of tried to sweep it under the rug, caused irreparable, irreparable harm to her. He was not a perfect man. But what kept David from being undone by all of his bad decisions, all of his mistakes, what, the renewing thing in his life is that, is that he was described as a man after God's own heart. Wasn't a perfect guy, but he knew at his most broken moments that he just needed to turn his attention back to God. The love of God that was shown to him, the grace and the kindness of God. See, there is no force in the universe more powerful than grace. Grace has the power not only to save us, but grace has the power to change us. Grace has the power, grace alone has the power to heal us. That's a godliness with power, pointing our eyes on it again and again, directing our hearts toward it again and again. Not on what's wrong in the world, but what is right, the very heart of God. 
So, so there you have it, righteousness in godliness, righteousness in godliness. These words do not mean what we think they mean, but when we understand what they mean and when we pursue them rather than all of the other things that we tend to run after when the world gets unsteady, and I know, again, when the world gets crazy, we want to fight back, we want to stand our ground, we want to get militant, we want to fight with, with worldly weapons, and yet these are the most powerful things we can pursue. And it doesn't matter if you're minority or majority, privileged, underprivileged, it doesn't matter. When you pursue these things, there is real power for you and for the world around you. But you have to know what these words mean. And more than just knowing what they mean, you've got to set your heart to pursue them. Let me pray and ask God to direct us that way. Lord in heaven, Thank you for being a God who chases after us, who runs toward us in our messes, in our sin, in our dysfunction, in all of our brokenness, and in all of the things about us that are not right, just definitively not right. Thank you for running toward us. Thanks for saying over us that even though there's a lot of stuff in our lives that is not okay, that we are okay because of Jesus. Jesus is our proof that we're now okay. And God, out of that righteousness, I pray that you would cause us to want to live similarly with the people around us. May we pursue right living, just living, fair living, even when it costs us. And God, when we're overwhelmed by the ugliness of the world around us, Keep us from focusing and fighting against those things. Instead, keep our hearts directed, trained only on your heart. For you are a God who did not send your son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. You love the world, even in its brokenness. God, give us that same kind of love. And then, Lord, I pray that out of these things, Lord, I don't even have to pray it, it is just so, but so I pray that you'd convince us that out of these things, by pursuing these things, we are more powerful than anything else that we could pursue. So Lord, God, thank you for the way that you've been toward us. We pray you'd help us become more like you, that we would trust you to fight our battles and instead we would we would pursue righteousness and godliness. That those would be hallmarks of who we are. Imperfect people and yet striving for these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages like this, hit the subscribe button. You can also find more resources at our website, pathfinderstl.org.